Hi guys, for this month's podcast, I wanted to do a recap of all of the topics that we've covered this year and where we are now. I think it's a great thing to look back and also to just thank you guys for supporting the podcast throughout the year. So in February, the first podcast that we did was with OP Bus and OP Bus is an electric or e-mobility um, company. Um, they do buses and they were moving into motorcycles as well. And one of the things that um, that was highlighted by our guest from OP Bus, uh, OP Bus is what needed to be done in order to incentivize um, the use of electric vehicles in the country and e-mobility vehicles. Um, and so I just wanted to insert a clip of what he said and how it's relevant to us now. In terms of what you want to see in you know in actual form of legislation, mm. what is it that you're currently lobbying for aside from um, you know uh, you know an, an electric or an e mobility act or something like that? What is it that you're is it your it's the insurance products? Mm. It's the technical committee to be able to manufacture in this country. Yeah. It's the tax relief. Yeah. And, and what else? We're also looking at and the incentives for people who want to buy this electric okay. electric vehicle. Mm-hmm. They should be given like uh, if you want to if you want to uh, convert your car, mm-hmm. the the government should be able to incentivize something mm-hmm. for you to be able to embrace it mm-hmm. fully. There, there should be a, a take home a hanging fruit for the people who want to migrate to uh, to, uh, to, uh, to electric to electric, electric so vehicles. So just encouraging that environment. As yes, well. yeah, yeah. Okay. So the work I think that OPBAS have been doing has been excellent throughout the year. And also we've seen developments across the board on um, the use of electric vehicles. There's been transactions with Basigo that have been in the news as well. And I think this is a developing area and we will see more growth in it um, to come. So look out for it in 2023 as well. In March, we had a conversation with Nicola Muriuki of Tala and Kevin Matisse of the Digital Lenders Association, although I think it's changed its name since then. Uh, Nicola was great at explaining, first of all, her move from her in-house role into the role at Tala, and I think we'll insert a clip here. And then the other thing that Nicola told us about was about the work that Tala has been doing, and I think we'll insert another clip here for you guys. And key to this discussion with Kevin and Nicola was about the regulation of digital lending in this country, which has been a huge topic for 2022. I know everyone has been talking about it, its impact on digital lending, what digital lenders will do in the country, how it will impact customers as well as um, you know, uh, the companies themselves. Um, the interesting thing about this discussion is that in March, we didn't really know where it was going or how it would affect us. And so we were even looking to the future. But to this date, uh, we still we still only have 10 digital lending companies regulated, 278 still outstanding to go. And so it will be interesting to see where this takes us in 2023. And I'm sure we'll have another discussion on it. Um, the interesting thing about it is that um, I think we were looking at it from a perspective of what happens post-regulation. We've not even reached there yet. But let's listen to that clip and you guys can see what our discussion, where our discussion took us at that time. But also being in-house is great because you're more of a business advisor, Yeah. Uh, which actually has been really nice for me to, to make that move from private practice to being in-house. Um, because as a, as a litigator, as somebody advising on disputes all the time, yeah. clients only want you when things have gone wrong. And when you've resolved the matter, they're very happy. You know, they don't want to see you anymore in the yeah. nicest possible way. They're Correct. like, thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that goodbye mm-hmm. um, whereas when you're in-house yes you might be advising on disputes but you're also advising on how to advance business strategy yeah le- being legally compliant um, and and that's actually a lot of fun because mm. you get to see business growth yeah March is International Women's Day and in April uh, we 
posted or I posted this the conversation between myself and Lady Justice FEO War, which we had had at our Women's Day event that CDH hosts every year. I thought it was a great discussion and I thought it was so important to go to out to more than the women that were in the audience at the time. It was the first live episode that we had done and I really enjoyed this conversation. I mean, when I listened to it yesterday in preparation for this um, conversation, I just thought, why shouldn't everyone listen to the entire episode? And I couldn't even choose the snippets that I wanted to give you guys. But I think the, the first discussion that we had which is a key discussion, is first on how she ascended to her role and how she did so many firsts in this country. Because she was the first, I think, magistrate, senior justice, justice of the Court of Appeal. I mean, so many firsts. So listen to that now. So your career has seen a lot of monumental and groundbreaking firsts, from the first female state council of Kenya to the first female magistrate and later to the first senior magistrate, high court judge, court of, the, uh, of, uh, court of appeal. What is it like living through all of these firsts? Tell us. First of all, and most important, I'm frightened of you all, all you girls, <laughs> because I hear that amongst you are very high professionals, lawyers, everybody. So I asked Jerry, I said, Jerry, these ladies you want me to talk to, what kind of ladies are they? I said, am I talking to women like me who spend most of our time in church and then we go for Kesha? She said, no, 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 no. These are all very professional women who spend most of their time in boardrooms and in courts and everything else. So I got a bit frightened. So now I see you are human beings. I can relax a little bit, and I, I talk to you. As she said, we are going to have a conversation. I am not lecturing anybody because I know more than you. You know more than I do. So let's have this conversation and enjoy ourselves. Exactly. Especially after we have had a wine. <laughs> Jerry, when you say I've had fasts, let's make it quite clear. I was in the right place at the right time. Okay. We weren't very many when I came on the scene. I am 78 years old. So, Amen. So, no, I always haven't been like this. There were times I was half this. So don't <laughs> clap for me yet. Anyway, I was at the right place at the right time. And as she said, it could have been somebody else who was there at that time, but it, they, they, we weren't very many. So when I came on the scene, immediately after that, women began coming up. And you would be surprised what has happened in the short time, that from that time, I call it short, because it all has happened in my lifetime. That's why all these lawyers and everybody else, you are around here, and we are talking about what you do. Okay. It was not easy. I had, I can't remember her name, but I had her talking about her experience when she goes to the courtroom and she's going to do litigation. Somehow, society makes you feel that if you do things the way men do things, then you are doing things the right way. And that's where we go wrong. And that's where I went wrong. I was amongst these men and um, most of the time, I would be wanting to do what they are doing. It couldn't work 
my life was different. I had family, I had a household, I had everything. I had to leave work, just like you, go home, cook for a husband. If I didn't cook, I would be in trouble. Worry about breastfeeding, what did the men didn't have to do? So just as she said, you cannot do it the way they do it. We do it the only way we can do it and in our own space. The other important snippet that we had from her is how she fought for her place in, um, in the court system and basically to fight for per to be permanent and pensionable just as the men were in those times. And I think sometimes we forget how difficult it has been for women um, to climb to the heights that they have and that there have been women who have fought for us to be where they are um, and to be where we are. And so all I can say to Lady Justice Effie Award is thank you so much for blessing us with this discussion and thank you for fighting for us and so that we are where we are now. One morning, um, myself and Justice Saluj, and I can't remember who else, we decided we were going to see the permanent secretary called Mr. Letting. And we went into Letting's office and we said, Letting, what is going on? How come that every we finish contracts and then we go home and then we have to reapply and sometimes wait for another two months before our the contracts are, are renewed? Mm -hmm. He said, oh, is it? I said, yeah. We don't serve on permanent punishment terms like everybody else. And then not only that, most of these women who are now, younger women who are now coming into the service, their husbands were not necessarily civil servants or big company shots. They were just ordinary girls or ordinary women joining the service. They were not entitled to house allowance. Oh, uh, the same house that uh, they may have been kicked out of later. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We are not entitled to house allowance. Mm -hmm. So you could not walk off your husband and say, I'm going to have a house. No. So you stuck there and you had all these problems and you took them in because you didn't have house, house allowance. Yes, yeah. mm -hmm. So we fought for that. We did. And a lot of other women came in, civil society came in, and we fought, Mandalaya Wanawake came in. Eventually, women were employed in Kenya government on pensionable permanent service mm. terms. And yeah. In May, we talked to Stefan Dubrov, who is the Chief Executive Officer of Cassava Technologies. And part of Cassava Technologies is Liquid Telcom, and they run data centers across Africa and are, and are fast expanding um, in that market. One of the things that has been a running theme for this year is really the use of technology and fintech uh, as a driver for innovation and also for development in, the, in Africa and across you know, all of our practice areas. And so Stefan was really here to explain to us how cloud services work and what they really do um, and their role in businesses across Africa. Um, specifically, he was talking about um, in Kenya. And so I've just inserted a clip here so that you can gain an understanding of that. The data center is a physical representation of the information, of the content that um, is shared by organizations. And the cloud is a backup to that. Will we still need both in the future, or do you see it as um, cloud-based only? Is that a is that a is that a legitimate question? It's very close, uh, Jeremy. The only thing that 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 I you know one could challenge is you know uh, probably the cloud is not the backup of a, of a data center. Okay. The cloud is basically a, a different way of organizing your IT. Okay. Where 
instead of having to buy a server yourself, to buy a software license yourself that you're only using at five or ten percent of its capacity and five or ten percent of the time, you don't do that. You don't invest in all of that that is not useful to you. It's the software developer that gives you when you want yeah. and to the to the quantity you you need only access to its server. So, so you, you don't have to invest and you only use what you need. So part of the existing IT is migrating uh, uh, into that, uh, but part of the existing IT cannot migrate to that. So you know, typically you will see organizations, and you know, I'm saying that every day, in Africa and, and in the rest of the world, uh, uh, migrating their servers, so all of that, they have servers, they put it in a data center where there are also uh, uh, cloud operators, and then they progressively transfer what they can transfer, migrate it to the cloud, in under the same roof, and keep what cannot be transferred to the cloud also under the same roof, and that allows all of the communication between the two parts faster and cheaper. The next part that I wanted to highlight from this discussion, although it was a, really a great discussion, um, is that uh, cloud-based services or you know cloud-based infrastructure, uh, there is an issue about whether or not they're environmentally safe, whether it's sound. What does it mean to have cloud services, uh, you know, the real estate taken up by that kind of of technology? And so we also had a discussion on that, which was very interesting. And I think Stefan did a great job of explaining it to us. So I've inserted another clip here for you guys. Some of the criticisms of data centers, aside from the fact, you know, of all the positive things that you're providing to companies, is obviously the green impact on, you know, the buildings themselves and et cetera, um, uh, the environmental impact on that, um, the way in which the, the data centers are structured. Um, what do you have to say about what, what how do you, uh, how are you dealing with that? And are you adhering to certain standards? Because I guess we are a bit behind um, Europe has already dealt with uh, regulating data centers, you know, in, in terms of trying to legislate for that. Um, how are you doing that within Africa data centers? There are two things, uh, Jerry. The first one is it is wrong to believe that data centers are bad for the environment. Okay. It is very wrong. Two steps there. First step, the digital life. The digital life is saving a lot of the human being carbon impact. You're too young for that, but I, I have lived a long time without the internet. And when I had to negotiate a contract, say in Mombasa when you're in Nairobi, I actually had to fly to print the contract. Yeah, and take the contract. To Mombasa, discuss with my partners, fly back to Nairobi, modify the contract, print it again, and fly again, etc., etc. Whereas now you just send it by email. So the digital world is a huge saver of the human carbon footprint. Now, that is step one. Step two, if that digital world was not gathered in a data center, it would consume three to four times more power. Mm 
Yeah. Because we mutualize equipment. Because we are so big that we get we have access to industrial equipment. Take our 300 customers. They need security of all of you know what I explained earlier, power, climate control, etc. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they would have if if we were not existing, they would have had to buy theirs, their roads. So each of those 300 would have one, or actually potentially two generators, backup generators in case power was, you know, during uh, uh, load shedding or, or, or grid outages. Yeah. So that would be 600. Uh, uh, whereas to serve uh, those 300 customers, we, we 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 probably have 30. That are, and, and, and it's the same for uh, uh, every piece of equipment. Uh, surveys have shown that a kilowatt hour used, consumed in the data center, is something like seven or eight kilowatt hours that are not consumed elsewhere. Okay. In June, we spoke to, we had a panel discussion on private equity and venture capital in Africa and specifically in, um, in Kenya as well, with Novistar, INP and New Forest, all who are either in the PE space or in the VC space, and they explained to us how they work. Uh, I think... Uh, this is one of my practice areas, and therefore it was very important for me to bring this to the fore, especially because people don't really understand the difference between private equity and venture capital. And so I've inserted a clip here for you guys. So there's a question that I wanted to ask Frank, but since he's not here, I'm going to ask you <laughs> on the, the long term changes that you're looking at for in your investment approach. Are you looking at it differently now that we're post COVID than before? And is there something that else that we, you can advise on? Um, what is looking attractive to you in the market now? So I think COVID has changed um, the way we work and the way we look at things. So should, uh, I, should I tell you what Frank's answer was? Frank's answer was, <laughs> just to help you along, <laughs> Frank's answer was on service and tech-driven companies. That's where he's his focus on. Anything different from that? No, quite similar, actually. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, because the way we've changed uh, how we work as, as funds and how entrepreneurs work and how we relate to them. Uh, we've entered a new world where I don't think we're going back. Yeah. Uh, in, in many different aspects. Um, and that has a lot of positives, one in, in just efficiency and how we work, but also uh, in terms of time and also uh, reducing the carbon uh, footprint of, of flying around every month. Yeah. Uh, so that has changed. And then the infusion of technology uh, I mean, we talked about what M-Pesa has done. And th that has been a long time coming, but the acceleration is just excellent. And, and today, uh, if you break down, and it's happened to me, if, if you break down uh, somewhere along uh, Nairobi and Nakuru, you can actually pay uh, through M-Pesa, get a, a new engine, for example. And it get it delivered. And it get it delivered <laughs> somewhere on the road. Get it fixed within 24 hours, which you cannot even do somewhere in Europe or the US. That's that's yeah. probably true, yeah. yeah. Perhaps people don't know necessarily, but there is a different, a difference and a huge difference in the investment approach that people have taken. Traditionally, it has been very um, safe areas of um, 
of sectors of investment. So, for example, retail or, you know, commercial spaces or, you know, FMCG. And now we're, because of fintech and because of the advancement of where we are in terms of technology, people are changing their, their investment approach and also how they are approaching um the, the, the different sectors that they want to invest in. So is it a short-term investment? Are they doing it across um, Africa? Are they focusing on a specific uh, country in Africa? What is it that they really want to get out of it? Does venture capital mean that you're risking your money and not necessarily expecting a return back? What does it mean to be a private equity investor in a business across Africa? Um, and what are, what are you... Um, you know, mitigating against, uh, and also how are you trying to improve and impact people's lives? And I think we had a discussion on that, which is very interesting. And so I've inserted another clip for you guys here. So you've heard of the great resignation where people are no longer willing to stay in a nine to five just for the sake of it. And it's yeah. not that interesting to be doing a boring job that, you know, yeah. is not going to give you value or whatever you see value as. And how does that then affect your ability to attract um, investee companies or even you know the people that you are transacting with and even for you the VCs maybe they're not willing to be um, as patient as other VC companies were at the, at the start of the game um, so how, what is the approach that we need to take now that we know that you know we're dealing with a different generation yeah I, I, I um, first of all when my kids tell me about generations they you know the list I don't know what generation I think we're, <laughs> we're generation Z right I think yeah but I think they are now on to another generation yeah. and, and each you know comes with its own I don't know how it happens but its own characteristics Correct. that are able to mm -hmm. be profiled and I don't know if there's much that you can do about changing them so but I think you can do something about changing the environment that we create for whichever generation um, I think one of the things that, for example, COVID has taught us is that we can actually, you know, work from home, yeah. you know, work from different spaces and still be productive. I, I think at the heart of it for me is really how to get what you want out, out of the, you know, your human capital, how to get them more productive. Um, and the sooner we, you figure that out, the better. But it just means that also you must clearly define the culture that you want to build and the style that you want to build so that when you go to find these people yeah <laughs> they are of that culture and, and and that profile and you're not trying to get a different sort of fit and, and trying to retrofit it we the market in kenya has changed rapidly um again with time obviously um we, there was a time when everyone wanted to work you know in a multinational, there was a time when prior to that everyone wanted to be in government. Yeah. Um, and, and now we're seeing people leaving school and just wanting to do something for themselves. Correct. To be creative. Yeah. Uh, we can't invest in all of them, but they can each contribute in their own ways to, to the enterprises that we're building. And, 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 you know, you can find that, look, I'm setting up this company. Maybe I don't need to have the IT in-house. I can outsource it to this group of mm -hmm. you know, young people kids out of college who are very good at it and they enjoy working the way they work but they can deliver that service to me so we really have to refigure how we get you know what we want from them rather than trying to put everyone into an office you know, and say Setting, work here yeah. eight to five correct yeah. correct Sapna? so i think the the big change that's also i think COVID has highlighted is that and it was already happening but we can we really see people saying actually just making money doesn't work mm -hmm. and the selfishness of that doesn't work so how actually can we run society in a way that is more equal and this young people trying different things around that and 
we as Novastar will figure out the ones that can create the impact but also create the returns. But overall, that is such a bonus. We'll see entrepreneurs mm-hmm. that want to fix the environment. You know, we may not be here in 10 years if, uh, if this global warming goes the rate that it's going. Yeah. And, and that's the excitement. Um, and trying to harness that, mm-hmm. whether it's in the employees we um, hire, whether it's in the entrepreneurs we back, or just the ecosystem. Yeah. Um, I think there's, there's a lot of potential. So at the halfway point in the year in July, I wanted to have a discussion on wellness and mental health in, um, in the corporate setting. Um, so I chose to speak to Chris Moradi, who is an expert in this area. Uh, and Chris was really excellent. And even from this discussion, um, I know that Chris has had an engagement with other co- corporate companies um, to see how he can then impact uh, their businesses. But he taught us a lot about what does wellness mean and how do you make sure that you are uh, setting boundaries within your within your workplace? How are you making sure that you're getting the most out of your work? Um, and so I've just inserted a clip here um, on how to optimize um, your workforce, how to make sure that you're getting the best out of the people that you're working with. Uh, and then I have another clip for you guys on um, setting boundaries, which I think is really important for any employee um, in any business. Wellness, the only thing is that it's a more wholesome approach mm-hmm. to being healthy. Mm-hmm. It, it's not just about your mental health. It's not just about your physical health. It's also about your social health. It's about your financial health. health. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. about your vocational mm-hmm. health. Mm-hmm. And I will insist vocational health because i was i was reading a, i was reading i was looking through a study that said 80 percent of people within organizations don't feel that they are working in the areas of their strengths mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and there's a mismatch between their work what their strengths are and where they are placed mm-hmm. and the end result is there's a lot of frustration mm-hmm. within the workspace and also most organizations are not operating at optimal capacity yeah because if only 20 percent of people feel that they are placed in the in the they are positioned right then means the organization is operating only at 20 percent capacity yeah mm-hmm. and because of when you constantly do something you don't like if you are a fish but you are forced to climb a tree it's just a matter of time before something will snap mm-hmm. so Doing something you love that is in line with your passion and your gift is part of wellness. And many organizations hire qualified people, but then they place them wrongly. You hire a messy, but then you make them a goalkeeper. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of time. That before... was a football analogy for anyone yes. who didn't get that. Yes. <laughs> it's just a matter of time before there's a travesty. Mm-hmm. So part of wellness is ensuring that are my people placed in the right place? From there, you can see that um, what Chris says is that we can train our bosses on how to how to um, take care of us or how to treat us. And therefore, it's important if you're going into 2023, consider how you want to focus or refocus your energies um, in the workplace. One of the questions I had was, um, as an associate, I'm often called upon to work late and on weekends. If I push back, this may have negative effects on my career. How do I navigate this problem when it's having effects on my mental health? What's your answer, Chris? My answer is, one, we train our bosses how to treat us. Okay. Okay. We train them 
how to treat us. <laughs> this is so anti-boss. <laughs> Let's go. Yes. Like, go ahead. Go ahead. Yes, we train our bosses how mm. to treat us. And I think it's Martin Luther who said, you cannot, nobody can ride on your back unless your back is bent. Okay. And unless you're willing to stoop, <laughs> nobody will ride on your yeah. back. Mm-hmm. At the very beginning of your career or your employment, have your boundaries. I believe right now we have, uh, is it a bill? I'm not sure. I have not followed it up on it. We are calling an employee after five weeks. Yeah, well, it, it, people illegal. keep saying that, but it's actually not. It's not, it's not there yet. It's a proposal. It's, a it's proposal. not there yet. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How I wish. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know how practical it will be. But you, you're going to have a backlash of employers <laughs> on your back because That's for true. them, it is an extremely difficult thing. How, how can you tell someone I can't call you on weekends or, you know, the, the needs of the workplace are dictated by the clients that you have. Yes. So are we all going to like, you know, the domino effect that you talked about? Are we all going to push back and say, no, the, since, uh, you know, Anne can't do it at five o'clock, I have to give it to you tomorrow. And then the client says, well, we shall cross the bridge when we get there. For now, it's not there. But when you get there. Mm -hmm. So back to the question, Mm -hmm. as I said, you train your boss how Mm -hmm. to treat you. What boundaries do you set at the very onset of the relationship? If your boss, you've just come to CDH, your boss calls you at 7 p.m. and asks you to do this and you do it. The next time he calls you at 7 and you do it, he will think it's okay. That's why I said you train your boss how mm-hmm. to treat you. Mm-hmm. But if they call you at five and at seven and you tell them, okay, I will do it. However, I would appreciate with all due respect that you plan your calendar. Okay, you say it in a better way. <laughs> <laughs> but you see, in, the reality is, and, I, and I've been there myself as an associate where I have had to do the work at one o'clock in the morning or even you know, stay up late at night because the client demanded it of my boss at the Again, time you train your client yeah. mm-hmm. how to treat you as well mm-hmm. and so can the, the what the client decides then i'll go to company law x who can do it in a faster time the reason they will do that mm-hmm. is because at the very beginning you 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 set some ground rules whether written or unwritten that you can push me to uh, to whatever extent that you wish that mm-hmm. i am your i'm subservient to you because you are my customer mm-hmm. Well, the customer is king, but you set your ground rules as well. In August, we talked to Shem Otanga, my partner, on data protection regulation. Um, So the Data Protection Act and the regulations that have followed have come into force in Kenya. uh, And I think the deadline was 14th of September. But in any case, Shem was preparing us for what regulation means in this country. And I've inserted a clip here for you guys to understand um, better what it means for uh, businesses. But there have been claims and complaints lodged to the ODPC, um, the most prominent of which I recall um, sometime last year, um, where a leading you know, hotel franchise, local hotel franchise, yeah. it's actually it's a global one, but they've got a lo- local presence, um, had an incident where their guest register was leaked onto social media. Yeah. And, and you know, people whose names appeared um, on that register felt uncomfortable. I mean, it could be quite embarrassing, yeah. Exactly, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. now people know that I was at this hotel. And with someone or with whatever. <laughs> Those details didn't come out, but, you know, I mean, you don't you don't want people to know where you are. Well, yeah. You know, um, I mean, certainly not the whole world, you know, which is exactly what happened because this was on social media. So lawyers were instructed, a complaint was lodged, and this was before the regulations came into um, into place, um, the general regulations and yeah. the data protection mm-hmm. act. So... Mm-hmm. Um, not quite sure how that was processed because it's not 
public um, a process. At least it wasn't at that time. Um, and and you know no sanctions as far as I as I know, you know um, were visited upon the data controller in that context. So there have been um, scattered um, complaints here and there. Uh, including yesterday, we saw one also yeah. on social media. That's it was an employer-employee situation. Right, an employer-employee context. Mm-hmm. Um, so just to sort of underscore the point I made earlier, there's lots of breach happening. Yeah. Awareness levels are fairly low. Yeah. Um, and and a lot of work needs to be done on that front. And we do a lot of that, including this podcast. Yes. Mm-hmm. On this podcast to try and you know sort of educate people on on the need to comply because the law applies. It's a cross-cutting piece of legislation. It's like a tax. Yeah. Um, uh, legislation or tax mm-hmm. law. It, mm-hmm. it cuts across uh, all sectors. And then I have another clip um, on what the future of regulation means because obviously um, the impact of data protection regulation cuts across not only digital lending or you know any business where there's an E uh, attached to it, and, and, and by that I mean online. Um, and then also in an employment setting where uh, there may be disputes not only arising out of unfair termination or such a claim, but also of data protection breaches. And I think uh, Shem highlighted a case that was already ongoing on that. And so that's something that for the future, we all need to be aware of and much more sensitive to the regulation and how it's going to impact us. Let's do just that and educate the people. Right. So the regulations were enacted in January, so 14th of January. They were gazetted on 14th, yeah. Gazetted on the 14th of January, with the effect that they would be in force or compliance would have to be in place by the 14th of July. Explain the confusion with that and why it is that there's a requirement to comply now um, as opposed to a deadline that was set on the 14th right, of July. Right, so, uh, well, there was, just to be very clear, there are three sets of regulations. Yeah. So we had the general regulations, then we had um, complaints handling and enforcement mechanisms regulations and yeah. then we had now the data protection um, data controllers and data processors registration okay um, so data controllers and data processors were meant That's to be registered exactly. by the 14th of july under the um, regulations right, right so it was gazetted in january 14th yeah. with a six month grace period okay right so essentially it's uh, the provision says that um, these regulations will come into force within six months from the date of their gazettement. Yeah. Um, so, or come into effect. So, the date of effect was two weeks ago, uh, on 14th of, of um, July. July. So, mm-hmm. the data commissioner um, launched the website and the infrastructure for this for submitting applications on the 14th. Okay. So, no one could file an application. Okay. So, no um, one could be registered prior to 14th of exactly. July. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, the first application was submitted on that day. Mm-hmm. Um, credit to the data commissioner for setting up you know, a, a very good platform and having it up and running on the day uh, when the regulations came into effect. Okay. Um, but um, you know, one could argue that it may have been you know, better to you know, set up a platform so that people are registered. By the 14th. By the 14th. Okay. So that's, I think, where the confusion was. Could right. people be registered by the 14th or was it a deadline? Or right. were they just supposed to be starting the process of registration on the 14th? Yeah. And I think that's what it is now. Exactly. So it wasn't a deadline. It was a commencement date or a date of effect. And, you know, the data commissioner set up the okay. mechanisms and people submitted applications right. as from two weeks ago. Um, okay. 
so that's what happened there. Okay. In September, we spoke to Rina Shah, and she's a senior legal advisor at Nestle. I think it was important for me to have someone, first of all, a woman um, in a very senior role in the legal profession, but also someone who would exemplify to us the role of an in-house practitioner as opposed to a day-to-day -day legal practitioner, and how in-house uh, work different is different from working in in practice uh, because you're hitting all aspects of the business and you're much more of a commercial advisor um, and so i think she was really great at explaining that and i've inserted a clip here for you guys to listen to at some point you just need to comply right, right? at some point mm -hmm. um, i expect the data commissioner to um, begin to enforce and say hey listen um as of this date, we're going to start doing audits. Mm -hmm, and they have mm -hmm. the power to do inspections and audits and all that. So um, I can't say with certainty, I don't have a crystal ball and say that in a year from now, this is what will be happening. But I do expect that gradually we'll begin to see more and more um, tighter um, regulation, you know, or, or implementation of the regulation by the data commissioner. I think we'll begin to see more and more complaints and we're beginning to see this already being lodged yeah. now that the framework is, is in place mm -hmm. um, in all sorts of contexts. An interesting context would be the employment one, mm -hmm. right? Um, where people would perhaps seek redress side by side with the you know, employment Within an unfair dismissal exactly. claim or right. a constructive dismissal claim. Exactly. Yeah. They'll mm -hmm. probably look to the data commissioner to say, hey, listen, in the manner in which my my personal data was handled was not legitimate in the course of my dismissal. Yeah. Interesting questions might arise regarding publications about whether this person, about you know, an employee no longer being on, with, with an And how that information was shared. Exactly, and, how that was published mm -hmm. and all that, whether there was a lawful basis for such yeah, yeah. I imagine mm -hmm. employment lawyers will be very busy from a data protection perspective. Okay. You know, and we're already engaging with stakeholders, the FKE and people like those, yeah. um, to discuss these issues. Um, but I do see, um, data protection creeping into the employment space a bit more within the next year. I do see an increase in, in uh, complaints within a year. And after a year, I expect to see the data commissioner being a bit more firmer, you know, okay. uh, with, with, uh, with um, the approach towards enforcement. The other part that was very interesting for us to listen to is how Nestle is approaching um, regulation and also what it is about their specific business that is different from other businesses in terms of where they're focusing their energies on. And one of the things that she introduced us to was the concept of food law. Um, and food law is basically um, regulation of you know sugar, uh, carbohydrate, protein, all of those in the, the food that is distributed. And the regulation of these things means that um, governments are more focused on not only what food is being provided, but what its benefits are to society in general. And I think for future, this is a great one um, to understand now uh, so that we can see the impact uh, for years to come. So she was great at explaining that. And Rina, thank you so much for joining us. I am so happy that you actually talk about that because that's actually the Nestle way is to adopt the highest standard. Yeah. Um, and so I, I would allude to that being one of my um, my strengths in, in terms of how to successfully be a senior legal advisor or a compliance officer, or a data protection officer, whatever, whatever title you want to say. But the best way is is to actually apply the highest standard, standard. Mm -hmm. and and that means you know carrying out those um, comparative tables and disseminating that information in a simple way that the business 
as an in-house counsel because yeah. that's your client the business can actually translate those technical or rather you translate those technical complex issues into simple ways that they can apply them and yeah. that's that's where the success lies it's yeah. how do you translate all this jargon into something very simple so tell us what is your day-to-day like and and the second part of the question is in terms of the legal skills that you need is it um, is it corporate skills? Is it IP skills? Because Nestle has a very big brand. Um, is it data protection? As you already are the data compliance officer anyway. So which, what is the day-to-day like? And what part of the uh, legal mind do you need to apply? Um, Don't tell me all of it <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> no, no. So um, if, I, if we can go back to the first question. Yeah. Um, so just for my purposes, because there was a whole load on the second question, if you can just repeat the first question. Okay, so what is the day-to-day like? Okay, Mm -hmm. so um, in terms of my day-to-day, I have to actually be honest. You, if you're working across so many countries as the same as you, you can't really compare one day to the next. Uh, There's, you know, you could be carrying out, or rather, I, I know, I mean, in my case, one day I'm carrying out trainings, uh, the next day I could be actually focusing on reporting and analysis. Um, I mean, it's yeah. still within the, the legal field, yeah. you know, that there's obviously reporting they have to do there. I could be managing um, external litigate, um, litigation um, lawyers yeah. and, and um, I could... You know, there's there's a variety of yeah. uh, of work and, and contracts. I know the common thinking that most... Um, most people have is that as a lawyer that's what you do you draft mm. contracts review contracts yeah. review contracts mm-hmm. and and draft contracts mm-hmm. um but there's so much additional value that we bring to the table whether it's to a special project and where, you know in a, in a region like this there's a lot of mergers and acquisitions yeah. going on mm-hmm. but then there's the new focus areas which those are really exciting where we're we as lawyers within Nestle we're beginning to focus on sustainability yeah. and um and advocacy and data protection yeah. and food laws i mean food is the new tobacco you know that's what yeah. that's what we say in Nestle and yeah. and so there's there's a lot of focus in these areas and and so one way, one day to the next it definitely varies tell me about food law that's very interesting what, what does that mean um, so food law, now, if we're talking about the 80s, tobacco was really the... The regulation, you mean? Uh, yes. Yeah. So when I'm, when I'm, yeah. So I'm, I'm talking about food laws as in the regulation. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the sugar content, the okay. trans fat content, Correct. salt content. Okay. Um, but we're also, Nessa is not just taking a stance where you're looking at reducing just for compliance sake we are also looking at how do we fortify our nutrition um, because you have to meet the nutritional needs of the the country that you're in uh for example in in angola there and and i'm i'm just recalling some of this and um there were there was a serious um issue of malnutrition because some of the children they were not able to get regular meals. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Nestle did something amazing several years ago where they started to provide at least one meal um, and, and they were working with the Ministry of Education uh, to provide one healthy meal, which was also fortified with additional ingredients okay. mm-hmm. for children. Yeah. Um, so that they know that at least the children have that one meal when they come to and school. And there is a minimum, like the standard of like nutrition that you need. Or, exactly. Okay. 
In October, we spoke to Tim Fletcher, who is the chair of CDH. Uh, he was in Nairobi, and so I thought it would be a great opportunity to speak to him. Um, Tim is the chair of CDH, which means that he is at the top of his game in terms of not only um, his profession, he's a partner in the firm, but also in terms of leadership within the business. And so he was a great person to speak to, not only about the start of his career, and I've inserted a clip here just to demonstrate uh, to everyone who's listening that you may not necessarily plan for your career in the way that you anticipate but you get there in the end and I think Tim is a great example of that so listen now. I want to start off with why did you want to go into law what was the motivation where did you see an example of a lawyer that you thought this is something I want to do? I didn't actually want to go into law I wanted to be a journalist <laughs> okay but in South Africa in the 80s journalism was a, a dodgy profession to go into um, and so the next best thing appeared to be law, and so I just followed that path. Okay, and then why did you think dispute resolution then, if if you were thinking of law? Oh, that's a it's it's a longer story. So I I struggled with my board exams, and so at the end of my articles I wasn't retained, and I didn't have a job for a while. I did a few things. I was a security guard amongst other things, and eventually got a job at a at an insurance litigation firm. And yeah. so my path was then set. And when I came back to the firm, it was in a litigation capacity. And then it morphed from there because dispute resolution wasn't really a concept then either. Yeah, it was um, litigation. It was litigation, arbitration yeah. and, and alternative dispute resolution came yeah. a little bit later. Yeah. So that's how it happened. Yeah. I think that if things, if I'd, if I'd studied a bit harder and hadn't met a a beautiful woman who became my <laughs> wife uh, and been distracted, maybe I, I would have ended up being a commercial practitioner, I don't know. How many times did you do the board exams? I did it three times. <laughs> uh, how does that make you feel? I mean, it, it takes a lot of determination, first of all, to do it the first time. Mm. And then, you know, you get the disappointment of the failure. And then, so three times is a lot to go through, isn't it? It's, it is a lot to go through. It was, mm -hmm. it was a big challenge for me because I, I wasn't a great student at university, but I wasn't that bad. But it was the, the oral examinations that, that really killed me. I struggled with the oral examinations. Really? And, yeah. and then into litigation, because that's a, you know, an oral, you, it requires like, you know, presentation skills more than, I guess, a commercial practice. It does, um, but it's, it's different to one-on-one -on -one with somebody interrogating you. Yeah. So were you quite shy and reserved? Uh, I have always been, I, I regard myself as a bit of an introvert. So people, people are amazed because you, you learn to push yourself and be outgoing because yeah. you have to be but i've always been a little bit shy and reserved yeah and now except you're, in my family <laughs> and yeah. now you're the chair of cdh so i guess you're d demonstrating that you can start from anywhere and still get to where you're going oh absolutely i mean but if you ask me did i ever plan this this career path absolutely not yeah i mean i'm as shocked as anybody as to where i've where i've ended up the other thing that Tim was great at is explaining that he didn't have particularly have a destination in mind when he started his legal career, uh, but that he was taking micro steps. And I think he gave us an example of what Tim Minchin says, is that you just need to take to look at what's in front of you. And I know some people have bucket lists, some people plan way, have five-year plans and play, plan way in ahead of, ahead of time. Uh, and I think he has an alternative view, which is a great one for anyone who thinks that there's one direct path to follow. I think he did demonstrate that there isn't and you can do it how you want as long as you get to where you want to in the end of the day. How do you see your role as a chair in that transformation um, angle? What is your role as a chair actually? 
Well, that's an interesting question because <laughs> when I was asked to become the chair, obviously the first place I looked was the regulations and the regulations say that it gives me a few jobs like I chair the partners meeting, I'm an, I'm an ex officio member of, of the executive committee, um, but it doesn't actually tell, tell you what the substance of the role is. Yeah. And so to some extent you've got to craft that yourself. And I, I regard the substance of my role mostly as pastoral care so it is looking after the people. Okay. Um, and that has been quite a, a challenge to keep, to keep energized because when you're dealing with people and you're dealing with people issues, it requires a lot of emotional energy, yeah. um, a lot of emotional intelligence. Um, and most of the time, I think I've done an okay job. Every now and again, my, my Irish temper gets, gets <laughs> the better of me. Yeah. Um, but... Yeah, as I say, it's a job that, that I'm learning as I go along. So yeah. mm-hmm. the one thing that I, that I do realize is that if I come to Nairobi, for example, I need to meet as many people as possible. Um, a, a big challenge for me is remembering people's names. Yeah, yeah. Because particularly coming out of COVID, I suddenly met a whole cohort in Johannesburg of, of candidate attorneys that I'd never met before. In fact, yeah. some of my partners I'd never met before. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's just about um, looking after the people and making sure, as far as possible, that the, that the people are happy. The the things that I say to candidate attorneys, in fact, I've pinched this from a, a, an Australian comedian called Tim Minchin, who. I like that guy. Yeah. He plays the piano, right? He plays the piano. Yeah, yeah. yeah. he's got long hair and often yeah. he's often appears on stage in bare feet. But yeah. uh, he he did a speech to the University of Western Australia, and it's and it's a clip worth watching on on YouTube, he says that you should focus on what's directly in front of you and, and work hard at what's directly in front of you. Um, be micro-ambitious, I think is what he says. Micro-ambitious, I like that. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says that develop your peripheral vision because because the next shiny thing in your career might not be directly in front of you. Mm-hmm. It might be out to the side. And and that's that's certainly how I've I've worked. I've always been scared of having grandiose goals i don't like for example having a bucket list okay because i don't want to die feeling like i've only <laughs> achieved three things on my bucket list yeah mm-hmm. um I, i'll go and do things that i fancy at the time and so that's that's how my career has developed the opportunity to become practice head um presented itself because our then practice head peter conradi was talking about stepping down and I thought to myself, well, I think I could do an okay job at this. And so I put my hand up. And funnily enough, it was Rishab and Moodley, who's now taking over from me as practice head, and I, who were the two candidates. And Rishab then decided that he would step back. And that was about 10 years ago, and I've yeah. been practice head since then. And then the, exactly the same with chairperson. I never, ever dreamed of being chairperson. Didn't, did, In fact, didn't want to be chairperson. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then somebody said to me, would you be prepared to accept a nomination? Yeah. And I thought about it, spoke to some people, and again, thought I could do an okay job. Yeah. And so put my hand up. But I think even in that, you're not recognizing, like there's a specific skill that you must bring so that people recognize your leadership ability. Um, what do you, is it putting your hand up? Is it being the first person to talk? Is it is it being forthright in your opinions? Is it understanding people and being emotionally intelligent? What do you think um, has steered you in that um, you know that leadership direction? I think emotional intelligence is one of the things. Yeah. Um, but I suppose that where my strength is that is that I'm a doer. 
Yeah. I'm not a, I'm not that much of a talker. Uh, so if if you ever attend one of the meetings that I chair, I I don't spend a lot of time talking. Pontificating. Pontificating. Um, I I want to get on to the to what the action points are. And let's get this thing done. Let's get. Yeah. Th- which sometimes is a strength. Sometimes it's a weakness. Uh, when we when we are involved in strategic discussions, these broad blue sky strategic discussions, I don't think I'm as effective. I think I'm much more effective if you give me a job to do. There's a yeah. there's a to do list, and, and we go and do it. Yeah. In November, we spoke to Ed Burbridge. Ed Burbridge is the head of INM Burbridge Capital, his own business, um, and it's a corporate advisory firm preparing businesses for investment. Um, assisting businesses to seek investment um, in, in across Africa. But one of the things that, why, why I wanted to talk to Ed is, first of all, that he took the leap of coming to Kenya um, with no, not having known anyone and decided to take the leap of faith and decided to put his energies into African businesses and helping them to gain investment. And I think he's been very successful in that. Um, for any business that's looking for a potential investment, I think he had great advice on what to look for when you're, or what to do when you're looking for investment, so how to prepare. Uh, and I think I've inserted a clip here on that as well. If you were advising a, a potential target company um, about how to be investor ready or what attracts uh, potential investors into their business, um, whether it be a small private equity fund or you know DFI at the larger end, uh, what would you give them as the number one piece of advice to become investor ready in um, their business? Um, I think it comes back to planning again. You know, like you were saying, it probably is you know one of, if not the most important thing for running a business, um, but also for preparing your business yeah. for that. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. I think um, what quite often happens is that investors are interested. And then, you know, they meet the business and it's evidently the records are not in good shape. The records, I always say the records, the, um, just your books, are they in order? I think it's, it's something that, you know, can really differentiate two businesses from another. Yeah, um, yeah. And then the due diligence yeah. is easier. Yeah, and you don't get caught out along the way. You know, mm-hmm. we've seen deals fall over quite often in countries outside of Kenya, actually. Yeah. A lot of the Kenyan businesses are pretty pretty well organized i mean it just depends you know a lot of the work we take on these days is for mid and large cap firms yeah so obviously they have a pretty good finance function cfo um <clears throat> legal documents are in okay order yeah. and that mm-hmm. sort of thing mm-hmm. um but so yeah i mean i think the the preparation is really important um I, you know i think the reality of it is as well as it's 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 hard to raise capital um, here, you know, and so until recently, anyway, the business needed to be quite well developed. Yeah. You know, to be mm-hmm. perfectly honest, if you want to raise money um, from banks, from DFIs, from PE firms, you can't generally, you need a track record, you know, profitability, history, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, except yeah. for certain sectors. Yeah. You need to be a reasonably well established business. So it's really more in that case about being aligned with an investor you know i think you have to be quite yeah 
open-minded mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and have a good temperament you know i don't think you can't think that you're just going to dictate to investors you have to understand that if they're going to come and be invested in your business they're taking a big risk as well on you and your yeah. business too and they have underlying investors who they're responsible to and then he talked to us about the future of deal making in kenya um and across africa and where the deals are because kenya has traditionally been the largest market for deal making and i think he's he's just demonstrating to us that there are statistics on that and that Kenya is still ahead of the pack um, and that, you know, it's important to consider the entire region and Africa as a whole when you're looking at investment. And I think this is a great one for anyone who wants to know um, about the future and where we will be in 2023 and 2024 to go. Yeah. Let's talk about then um, the region. Is Kenya still going to be, you know, where the deals are made? Are we looking at more at Rwanda, DRC, um, Uganda, Tanzania, etc.? Yeah, so we actually put out a publication every month on Oh, great. Deals. I don't get it. Ed. Oh, really? No. Sorry. I also don't get invited to your events, but anyway. That's <laughs> <laughs> Need to speak to the marketing yeah, team. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so we track basically the corporate deals in East Africa. Okay. We've done it for about seven years. You really? must have got it at your old maybe place, Maybe at my surely. old place, yeah. yeah. So maybe we, we should, um, get it, we should um, put a link um, for everyone here. Oh, yeah, sure. Please yeah. do, yeah. Um, so we track the corporate deals. So actually, I have a reasonably informed answer yeah. to your question. I mean, it's one of the reasons we do it is so that we're well plugged into what's happening. Yeah. It helps to shape our strategy, but it's also a good marketing tool for us. But anyway, basically what happens is um, at the moment, about 80% of the deals are in Kenya. Oh, wow. Okay. A lot. That's a lot. Yeah. And mm-hmm. the, um, maybe 12% in Uganda. Wow. And the rest are really a trickle for Rwanda, Tanzania, Ethiopia. Um, I think that sort of change, don't forget it's proportional, Mm. right? That's Mm. a percentage. So as the number of deals increases, that means that more deals are still happening in those other countries. But it's about scale, really. I mean, you know, Kenya has that, the Kenyan economy has that scale. Mm -hmm. And quite often, I suppose, they're actually regional deals, right? Somebody's buying into a Kenyan business, but but they're getting exposure through their regional subsidiaries Mm -hmm. to the region. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, well, you and I were at the conference in TZ, the OVCA Mm -hmm. conference Mm -hmm. a couple of weeks ago. And it was exactly what I was hoping. Yeah. You know, it was full of a lot of the senior representatives of dfis p firms etc which yeah. kind of mirrors what we're seeing in the market which yeah. is a lot of people want to get invested into Depends tz it, yeah. now mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. a big economy relatively as well yeah so i'd expect to see a big pickup it might not happen that quickly yeah but over the next couple of years i'd expect tz to take up a bigger proportion i mean of that. That, that's a good thing um for yeah. us as well um why because of the fact that we're well first of all we're in the region oh so as in all of us here. <laughs> I thought you meant you and your firm, actually. <laughs> Not just me, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah uh, for sure region, it is, yeah. for sure it is, yeah. So that is the year for us. Um, it's been a wonderful year for me, personally. Uh, I want to say thank you to all of my guests who have contributed to the podcast. I want to say thank you to you guys who have been there on every step of the way um, and listened and given me feedback and sent me emails and sent me messages. Um, I really do appreciate every single one of you who listens and takes the time to give me feedback as well um personally it's been a great year for me and i want to thank you all um and see you next year for more yeah thank you so much have a merry christmas have a wonderful year and we'll see you uh in january